Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. Happy Friday. We're going to try and clear up some confusion about the economy today. If inflation is the fear, why are interest rates falling? And if rates are falling, why are momentum stocks also sliding? We're going to speak with one strategist who says he has the answer to all of this, and it's a bullish one coming up in just a moment. Plus, the IPO boom continues, and we're going to talk to the head of one company that's gotten a big boost thanks to the pandemic. They make glass vials for COVID-19 vaccines, among other things, but the stock is tumbling in its debut. Plus, Square's crypto pop, Musk fears a flop, and the spending just won't stop. I'm really enjoying these rhymes. Uh, Dom Chu is over there with the markets. I love it. I love it. I'm sitting here going like it's so poetic on this Friday. So, Kelly, I don't have anything to top the rhyming that you just had going on. But I will tell you that it's a negative day for the markets overall. We've taken a bit of a turn, but it's not dramatically to the downside. Just fractional losses right now. The Dow Industrial is off roughly 100 points, about one third of one percent. Forty three fifty, the last trade for the S&P 500, 10 handles lower, about quarter of a percent decline there as well. And about two tenths of one percent for the Nasdaq Composite, holding at fourteen thousand five twenty one and change. Now, if you take a look at the overall picture for this week, it has been predominantly one where we talk about the emergence, I guess, if you will, the emergence of that kind of value trade, the dividend trade, the defensive trade all over again. Over a one-week basis, it's utilities and consumer staples, those two dividend-paying sectors that have done the best in that one-week span. And look at energy, a a huge decline here, 7%. That gap is pretty wide at this point for the last week. So again, energy taking it on the chin, the worst-performing S&P 500 sector. And speaking of some momentum waning, Chinese Internet stocks, DD Global, getting a visit from regulators and the government there, questioning some of the parts of their business model. That's kind of dragging the entire tech sector in China down with it. Has been for weeks, if not months now. Remember, this I, or Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, ticker KWeb, is off 2.5% right now. And we've pointed it out before, but it bears kind of mentioning again. Since the highs that we saw earlier this year, we are now down roughly 40% in that one. So again, the sentiment still very negative for those Chinese internet stocks. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. And sticking with tech, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Intel is eyeing global foundries in what could be a $30 billion mega deal. The merger would be Intel's biggest to date, and it would help bolster its production capabilities. A global foundry spokeswoman said they aren't in discussions with Intel. But my next guest says he wouldn't buy Intel shares regardless. Joining me now is Larry Kadisco. He's Osterweiss Capital Management's co-chief investment officer. Also with us is Paul Meeks. He's independent solutions wealth management portfolio manager. Uh, Two great guests to have on this discussion. We appreciate it, guys. And Larry, I'll start with you. I hope I didn't overstate (laughs) your thoughts on Intel there, but I know you're a big fan of what AMD's been uh, up to. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Um, No, you didn't overstate it. I think that the news that's out with uh, Intel looking at global foundries is an almost explicit acknowledgement that they don't think they're going to regain technology leadership in semiconductors. They're looking at a you know, spending a lot of money on a lower margin business. And I I think it points to a a significant pivot in their corporate strategy that, again, is 
an acknowledgement that there are a number of other players out there that uh, are going to maintain a competitive advantage against them for quite a while. First and foremost, AMD, which you call the Intel Slayer, say it's been validated by adoption cycles at Amazon and Google. I just, uh, Paul, before we move on from this topic, want your thoughts on Intel, because I think you also think it's coming from a place of desperation. But would you own the shares if they did a deal like this? I wouldn't, because I agree with Larry. This smacks of desperation. And in one sense, I would welcome the fact that they're finally throwing in the towel and admitting what they've needed to admit for a long period of time. No surprise under new management. But the other thing I would push back on, Kelly, is this is an awful expensive deal for manufacturing technology that is not necessarily state of the art. Hmm. All right. So, Larry, just in a quick coda to this, what would you want Intel to do here? If you say this would dilute profit margins, others say they have to sort of beef up their manufacturing prowess because they've kind of doubled down in that direction. What else could or should Intel do here? (laughs) They're kind of stuck, Kelly. I mean, if if you look at the big trends in semiconductor and data center computing in particular, you know, we all know that they're on a, you know, they can't get up to the current uh, manufacturing node. They're having a lot of problems. And other companies like AMD and NVIDIA have just superior products that are hitting very specific niches that are growing in the data center. I think Intel's in a very difficult position. All right. Let's broaden this out to tech a little bit more broadly right now. You also like Zendesk and Aptiv, Larry, but what are your thoughts on the tech trading environment that we're currently witnessing? What do you, what, how would you explain what's going on here? You know, it's been, it's sort of this, tech's kind of hostage to this idea of whether or not we're going to have a cyclical, a strong cyclical recovery in the economy. I think that sort of binary thinking around it is pretty misplaced. I can understand why you know the market is gravitating towards cyclicals and values, value stocks at the moment. But when you really think about a lot of these companies like AMD and, and data center computing as a whole and, and Zendesk, as you mentioned, there are a lot of industries with strong secular, secular trends that are really at the earlier stages of adoption cycles. I think over the next two to three and five years, Investors are going to want to own these names, too. So I don't get this sort of either or sort of market that we've been working through. I think that's a problematic. It's problematic for investors day to day. But I just think it's misplaced. Sure. No, that's well, well described. I think often different sectors get sucked into whatever the prevailing trade is. Paul, let's get granular. Where do you think investors should put their capital? You know, I continue to like scattered tech, but not all the tech. I think I might uh, disagree. You know, at the beginning of 2021, tech was out of favor. The value dividend players, uh, the ones that were sensitive to reopening the economy were back in vogue. But the last couple of weeks, we've turned back into tech. So I think uh, some tech stocks have actually gone from uh, being undervalued to very quickly and probably too quickly overvalued. But there are always some individual names that I like. And believe it or not, after being away from the fang trade for some time, I'm actually back in. Hmm. And I'm particularly uh, enamored with Facebook and Google, despite the regulatory threats, given the fact that there's going to continue to be a boom in digital advertising. And they dominate it. Last quick word on this, Paul, because that's an interesting point that you made. What areas do you suddenly think look a little bit overextended? I think some of the uh, stocks that uh, Cloud and some of the other um, names, uh, some of them with this rotation tech 
out of tech, back into tech, mm-hmm. have become a little bit scary, particularly if they're not supported by worthy fundamentals. No, both of you seem frustrated with the kind of broad-based uh, trading, whipsaw trading behavior that we are seeing. Uh, but really appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Great to have you today. Larry Cordisco and Paul Thank Meeks you. joining me. Well, as you've just heard, analysts still think tech has a lot of tailwinds in the long run. So that got me thinking. If tech's prospects are so good, why isn't the Kathy Woods trade doing better right now? As we talked about yesterday, her ARK-K innovation ETF was down for the 10th day out of 11, even as the 10-year yield plunged below 1.3%. It doesn't really make sense, and that's not the only curiosity. While the 10-year yield has slumped this month, the ARK-K ETF is actually down about 11%. Materials, which should do poorly if growth is slowing, are pretty much hanging in there. They're only down half a percent, and the financials are actually up by half a percent. None of this makes sense unless, maybe... The drop in yields is different this time. Strategist Michael Darda says rates are down because of a drop in term premium, and that's actually a bullish sign for the economy. He's the chief market strategist and economist at MKM Partners, and he joins me now, lurking behind me. Uh, Mike, it's great to have you here. So do tell why you think the drop in yields isn't about a slowing economy. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. So if we go back to March 31st, when the 10-year yield peaked just above 170, the entire decline uh, through the end of you know through the end of the uh, of last week when we you know hit those interim lows has been driven by real interest rates uh, barely a move in inflation expectations since the end of March they're off the highs of the year a bit but basically this has been a yield decline driven by real interest rates now that could be good or bad it depends. Uh, on what's driving it. So the question is, is are real rates falling because there's a, a drop off in investment demand relative to savings supply? That's what some of the bears believe. Or instead, is this essentially due to a wall of liquidity hitting the market? And when we look at some of the other credit market indicators like high yield debt spreads, they've actually narrowed since exactly. uh, the 10-year yield has been falling. Uh, industrial metals prices were 1% off the high. So I keep hearing, you know, about lumber and other individual commodity prices, but a broad index of metals that's sensitive to the global economy um, basically is is on the high. So it flattened out a bit. But we're not seeing the 2015 scenario where there was a legitimate concern about the Fed prematurely tightening, inflation expectations crashing, commodities crashing, credit spreads blowing out. And that was going on for some time. Uh, so I think it's really important to draw that distinction. Sure. Lastly, sure. the macro indicators do not support the idea the economy's falling off a cliff. Um, You mentioned in the piece you wrote, jobless claims just fell to a new post-pandemic low this past week. We have small business confidence. There's a sub-index of hiring plans, um, and that's a leading indicator, an inverse leading indicator for the unemployment rate, rose to an all-time record high in June. Uh, So that is totally inconsistent with the idea that we're set to fall off a cliff here in terms of economic growth, and that's why the 10-year yield is, is down. Right, which is all important because on the one hand, it means maybe we're in a pretty good economic situation where there's not a huge inflation um, concern anymore. And that also as it regards the Fed, where there are some who describe the environment as a bit of a tantrum over their tapering, you would kind of look at it differently and say almost that they have to, that that this liquidity swamp, if you want to call it that, is a consequence of them running policy too easy, not too tight. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is essentially the reverse of a taper tantrum. If we think about the 2013 situation in which real rates jumped up very rapidly, markets were surprised. Uh, just the opposite is, is going on here. And there could be some technical factors also affecting yields with the rundown in the, the Treasury general account that's actually adding money to the system. Uh, and it's it's going into bank deposits and back into the Treasury market. So we might have some uh, strange technical features that are, you know, that are also having a, a downward force on, on yields here as well. The broader question is if this reverses, if the economy, even if we're at peak growth and peak inflation, I think the second derivative stuff has gone into hysteria and been taken too far, but let's just accept it and say, okay, if we're still way above trend in terms of growth rates next year, you know, then the risk in terms of markets and some of the high valuation sectors and stocks you were talking about is valuation compression. Mm -hmm. The risk not being the economy collapses and earnings plunge, but rather that valuations are pressured uh, in much the same way that we were seeing uh, those areas struggle as the 10-year yield was was rising from last summer into the spring of this year. So a final question, Mike, especially as we've seen the child tax credit rolled out this year, there's a huge budget under proposal. There's been a lot of spending. We have a lot of deficits, a lot of debt, and no room for interest rates to go up and to crowd out other spending. Do you think at some point the Fed will decide it wants and enjoys rates this low? Well, it's all going to be determined by whether it's consistent with the, the Fed's goals. Right now, inflation expectations, you know, 230 basis points or so, the Fed probably feels pretty, you know, pretty comfortable about that. If real rates can just sit here and the economy doesn't overheat at all, um, you know, then great, we'll be able to maintain a pretty high valuation plateau. My guess is that's probably not going to prove the, to be the case, but I, I think next year will determine a lot. Uh, and, and whether this economy really settles into just trend growth and inflation uh, eases back to pretty low levels. But even in that scenario, even for a trend growth setting, the 10-year yield is actually 100 basis points below, uh, you know, what we observed just from the last cycle. So that kind of upside, I think, would be a risk, a major risk to certain sectors that dominate the S&P 500 market cap. So we do, I, I think that's the, the key risk for investors is on the valuation side here, not the business cycle. Absolutely. I was going to say it's oddly reassuring about the economy, but also nerve wracking sort of about a lot of the same factors as it relates to interest rates, plus the debt, and then how people are positioned is kind of a whole other issue. Mike, thanks for your time today. We'll let you get back to surfing. <laughs> Michael Darda is the chief strategist at MKM Partners. Coming up, vaccine vial maker Stevenato Group is falling in its public debut after pricing at 21 bucks a share. And that was at the low end of the range, down about 14 and percent. We're going to speak with the CEO next. Plus, vacation home prices are red hot this summer. And one startup is aiming to disrupt the high end section of the market. We'll speak with the CEO about what it takes to buy your very own slice of paradise. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more 
as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Vaccine makers like Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J may get all the headlines, but the vaccinations themselves wouldn't have been possible without the likes of Stevenato Group. Well, the company makes glass containers for global pharmaceutical companies for treatments, for vaccines. They also make plastic components for diagnostic test kits. They IPO'd today, priced at the low end. Shares are sliding about 14% on the open. With us is the CEO, Franco Stevenato, of C, uh, CEO of the Stevenato Group, along with our own Bob Bassani. So, uh, Mr. Stevenato, first of all, I mean, congratulations on the IPO Hi. and on, obviously, Thank a lot you. of your efforts as you've been involved with the pandemic. Are you disappointed uh, in the performance today? What do you make of it? Not at all. So, first of all, thank you, Kelly, to invite me to host into your program. We are we are quite happy because we are very happy because uh, the IPO for Stevanato was uh, in our program since many years, and the fact that we are listed in the New York New York Stock Exchange really we are we are extremely proud and extremely happy. We Stevanato is a company that has more than seventy years of history in the pharmaceutical industry, and we are here for the long term to serve our customers. So. We, we, we are not looking for this single term amount. We are more looking for the long term. All right. I know our Bob Bassani has a couple of questions as well. Bob? Uh, thank you. And uh, congratulations, Mr. Stevanato. Um, I, I want to make sure you. people understand what you do. You're a very critical supplier for the medical infrastructure of the war on COVID. You make the glass vials, the drug delivery systems, uh, the injection systems all over the world. I understand you have 90 percent of that of that business for for supplying uh, COVID treatments around the world. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So Stevanato is a company that is specialized in the glass and enclosure and system for the pharmaceutical industry. Let me show we produce this. We produce this, but even more, we produce this type of product. We produce more than 10 billion of containment solutions every year, and every day more than 30 million of containment solutions delivered to patients. So we were quite present in the vaccine space since more than 20 years, and this is the reason why we, we are so proactive in the vaccine, in particular for the contribution for the COVID-19. But at the end of the game, the COVID is a is going to be only a big, small portion of our total revenue in 20. 20 to represent only 5-6% of our total revenue. So we are so proud that we are contributing to the vaccine space for COVID that is going to be a minor part of our total business. Well, you're very important in the whole war on COVID. You supply the, the picks and shovels, essentially, uh, to make it possible for those drug delivery systems. We've been talking here a lot about inflation, about the effects of higher commodity prices uh, on products around the world. Uh, I wonder if you can share with us your experience about the higher, if there is any higher costs, about glass vials, about higher energy costs, packaging costs. What, what is your experience at Stevenato on inflation? 
we have strong, stronger, robust supply chain. So we have strong partnership with all our suppliers. Also, with all our major costs in energy are controlled. And the fact that we are spread in all the region of the world, we are not suffering for such a type of increase of cost because we were so. Uh, we put a lot of attention to build a solid supply chain. Even more, in order to do a contribution for the COVID, last year at the outbreak of COVID around March, we immediately increased capacity in all our operations all around the world. Today, we are present with 16 operation plants in nine countries all over the world. So I think everything is under control. Bob Bassani, thank you very much for joining us today, along with Franco Stevenato, Steven, uh, CEO of the Stevenato Group. We really appreciate it, guys. It's good education for everybody as well. Coming up, Bitcoin miners are moving out of China after the country's crackdown on crypto. But new data shows they were looking for a new home long before Beijing's ban. We'll tell you where they're going next. And as we head to break, take a look at some of the names hitting record highs today. AutoZone, Hershey, Waste Management, Pepsi, and ADP. Pretty good proxy for the labor market. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a check on the markets. Dow's down 110 points after being up as much as 102. So flip side of the picture there, although we're also off the lows, down 159. Here's some of the movers. Moderna shares are on pace for their best week since January after the S&P Dow Jones indices said they will be added to the S&P 500 prior to trading next Wednesday. Moderna shares are up 8% right now. And they're going to replace Alexian Pharmaceuticals as that company's deal to be acquired by AstraZeneca also formally closes next week. Take a look also at shares of American outdoor brands today. They are plunging 22% after the company reported an earnings beat but missed on revenue expectations for the quarter. They're now on pace for their worst day ever, going back to that spinoff from Smith & Wesson Brands just last August. Equities trading around $28. Now, places like Texas and Miami have been putting the full court press on Bitcoin miners after Beijing announced that sweeping new ban. But new data shows that miners, they were moving stateside even before that crackdown. CNBC.com's tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos is here with more for us. Mackenzie? Hey, Kelly. So new data shows that the United States has fast become the darling of the Bitcoin mining world. According to research from Cambridge University, the U.S. is the second biggest mining destination on the planet, just after China. We've known for months that China was kicking out all of its Bitcoin miners, and we had suspected that they were headed to the States because of the country's competitive energy landscape. But this data confirms that suspicion. The U.S. is home to nearly 17 percent of nearly all of the world's Bitcoin miners, which is a 151 percent increase from September. And as you said, Kelly, what's especially noteworthy here is the fact that this migration to the U.S. started even before the China crackdown began. What I'm hearing from some of the biggest U.S.-based mining operators is that America's global share of the mining market is likely much bigger. And Fred Thiel of Marathon Digital actually thinks that North America could have close to 40 percent of all miners by the end of 2022, with the U.S. accounting for a large portion of that share. One important note, this could totally change the narrative around Bitcoin's carbon footprint because the U.S. is known for its abundant sources of renewable energy. Kelly? Kelly? 
Right, which would be a nice turn from a lot of the concerns they had about mining in China. Mackenzie, and by the way, evidently Kazakhstan is another big winner of, of this minor migration. But as it relates to the U.S., could this actually be a good thing for human capital here in the long run? I mean, there are a lot of people scratching their heads because they're saying China is basically pushing out of the country some of the brightest minds working on, if you want to call it mining or crypto or software. I mean, you have to be, you know, these are very, very bright people. And evidently they're moving to the U.S., yeah, they are. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of companies, these U.S.-based Bitcoin miners, and they say that they already have deals going to both inherit the, inqui- the equipment, so the actual Bitcoin miners, but they also have this influx of smart minds coming to join forces with them. So I think it's going to be really interesting what happens in this space going forward. Absolutely. Mackenzie, thank you. Uh, Mackenzie Sigalos for us. Let's turn to Eamon Javers for our CNBC News update. Hi, Eamon. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's in the news at this hour. Deadly floods have left a giant sinkhole in a town in western Germany. Authorities are working to free those still trapped in their homes. At least 125 are dead. Take a look at that rushing water. Hundreds more remain missing. Now, for more on the rescue efforts and how officials are working to prevent further flooding, tune in tonight to the news with Shepard Smith. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern. And meanwhile, recovery efforts at the site of the collapsed Florida condo building are nearing the end. Only a few people remain unaccounted for, and nearly all of the 97 victims have now been identified. A Russian passenger plane made an emergency landing in Siberia after experiencing engine failure. Rescue helicopters were dispatched after the plane went missing in western Siberia. The aircraft was found laying on its belly in a field. No serious injuries have been reported there. And not everyone is excited for the Olympic Games to kick off next week. Dozens marching in the streets of Tokyo. Take a look at them there, protesting the upcoming event. Why? Well, COVID has been surging in the country as of late, and many are worried about the impact it's going to have on the country. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, in Japan, dozens of people is a protest. Uh, you know, That's right. But we've seen this time and again as people get ready to host. We hope the games go off well there. Just around the corner. Absolutely. Amen, thanks. You bet. Well, Jack Dorsey's cryptic crypto business... Apple's remote work crackdown, and it's the Roaring Twenties for Billionaires. All of those topics and one more coming up in Rapid Fire right after this. Remember, you can catch us anytime, anywhere. Listen to and follow the Exchange podcast today so you never miss a moment. We're back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for a couple stories that also need to be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today, Kim Forrest is the chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners. Sarah Fisher is media reporter at Axios. And I have a feeling our Robert Frank will be dropping in any moment now as well. The first topic is DeFi. Jack Dorsey is tweeting that his company, Square, is launching a new platform for, quote, non-custodial, permissionless and decentralized financial services. It'll have a focus on Bitcoin. He hasn't revealed any further details as of yet. Meantime, PayPal is announcing users can now purchase up to $100,000 worth of cryptocurrencies per week. That's up from 20 k previously. And while Bitcoin is still down 40% from its highs, it's on the rebound this afternoon. Kim, I'll start with you because you're in the lame old traditional investing and finance world. Uh, what's, your, what's your big, uh, do you have a big thought on DeFi and kind of this, this very, very nascent space that's quickly gathering momentum? Sure. I think everybody wants to have their cake and eat it too, right? But you're not going to have that. Um, I read uh, some of the information provided by uh, the company and I can't quite get my head around it. But essentially, you know that they're going to be making money off of you doing transactions or at least leaving a deposit somewhere in your square or whatever this new thing is going to be called in the footprint. Mm -hmm. So 
um, investor beware, nothing in, out there is free. And um, this certainly isn't a free transaction to you. It's a good point, Sarah, because if you look around, I mean, this is one of the things going on between Coinbase and Strike right now. It's, you know, they charge 3%. We're going to charge a fraction of that. I mean, in many ways, it is very reminiscent of the traditional space where this sort of fee war and fee compression has already happened. Yeah, that's right. And then the other big risk, Kelly, is that there's no third party that's a part of this transaction. So it's not like you can get insurance on any of the transactions happening between you and the Cash App, which is what I think they're going to be calling this new DeFi product. But I also think just broadly speaking, aside from the fees and what it means for the consumers in that perspective, this is a risk that I think most consumers feel the need to take. Everybody knows that we're moving towards a digital currency world. How long it takes us to get there is the question. But for now, you're seeing droves of consumers moving into cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And so if you're Jack Dorsey and you're seeing people move towards this decentralized world, if you build it, they will come. And he's been bullish on it for some time. Kim, let me just circle back to you. So when we look at the fintech performers, which have been tremendous, I mean, these are humongous market caps now. I think PayPal is like among the top five banking market caps, if you want to call it that, in, in the world. Um, do you Are you concerned about that? Or like Sarah's saying, does that just tell us that these are where the flows are going? I think that's what it tells us right now. Um, the, the funny thing about um, all the crypto stuff is people don't actually... Pay, use them to pay for transactions. This is about people buying them and waiting for the value to go up, right? So I think probably the biggest thing, that bit of information we're going to get in the next five years in this space is, is there an appetite for transactions? And if so, then, you know, somebody's going to make some money off of it. Is it the innovators or is it going to be the traditional banks? We won't know. But um, that's probably what I'm looking at the most is yeah. where are the transactions? Right. And who's making the fees and then who's going to reap right. in the benefits in the very long run? Absolutely. All right. right. Let's move along. Talk about Apple employees reportedly up in arms over the company's remote work policies. According to The Verge, Apple workers claim that ever since the company said workers should be back in the office at least three days a week beginning in September, it's been harder than ever to get work from home requests approved. One employee even alleged their disability accommodation would be denied come September and that could put their job status in jeopardy. And a recent internal survey found that more than 36 percent of Apple employees are concerned They'd have to leave the company altogether because of the lack of flexibility with remote work. As I mentioned, Robert Frank is here with us now, Robert. And we're seeing this battle play out in uh, New York City between the big banks, for instance, where there many want these workers back in the office but are aware, like we discussed yesterday, that high-paying jobs are on the offer remotely now more than ever. Yeah, with Apple, you know, they're already allowing hybrid. So they're allowing you to come in the office uh, three days a week and be home the other two. So that is a big improvement. And I think part of this has to do with housing prices and just the incredibly nightmarish commute that a lot of those Apple workers face pre-pandemic. You know, four of the top five most expensive housing markets in the country are right around Cupertino in that part of the Bay Area. So I think a lot of these people probably moved during the pandemic, probably loved not having to commute. And now even the two days a week or three days a week that they would have to be there is, is tough for them. So I, 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 look, I, I think Apple's being flexible, but I do think a lot of this is about what happened to housing prices. They've probably only gotten higher. It's the average home price there is over $2 million. So for a lot of those Apple employees, even the sort of mid to higher level executives, that's expensive. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, Sarah, as we sort of listen to the different ways that people are battling with employees over coming back, there was one financial executive, I think it might have been the Kander Fitzgerald CEO recently, who said, if you're that burned out, you need to look for a new job. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree. If you're that burned out at your company, you should be able to go to your manager, talk about it and find something that's suitable. But I think a big root of the Apple problem here is that there's such high demand right now for engineers, for people who work in technology. And so if your company is not accommodating you the way that you want, you can just leave. The demand for your skill set if you're working in technology is so high. Just go to one of Apple's competitors that is going to allow that hybrid work, Kelly. And Apple's competitors are all on top of it. Twitter, Facebook, you name it. They've all said that they're going to allow, I think it was up to expect up to 50% of their workers to be remote by 2025. They're going to allow a very flexible life. If Apple's not going to allow that, they should expect that some employees are not going to be happy with it. All right, Kim? Well, um, having started out as a software engineer, I feel their pain. Um, <laughs> but here's the, the true issue. If you allow people to decide where they want to live, you're going to have a much less productive workforce just because you have to have team meetings, you have to get people together. And if everybody's at home, that's one set of challenges, but they all are facing the same time kind of commitment. But having that hybrid workforce, it makes it really, really difficult. And I understand that people want to work um, from home, but life's funny and companies are just going to have to get a handle on this and really try to discern who can work productively, what teams can work productively, and what ones need to be either all in or all out of the office. Yeah, it does seem like there's a big divide between the sort of mantra that a lot of the financial world is taking about come back into the office, whereas in tech, Apple seems to be the outlier and basically not yet saying, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Uh, speaking of, moving along to another candid tweet from Elon Musk, the Cybertruck, he said, yes, it could flop, but he said the risk is worth it because it's just such a different kind of truck than anybody else could make. To be frank, he says there's always some chance a Cybertruck will flop because it's so unlike anything else. He says, I don't care. I love it so much, even if others don't. Other trucks look like copies of the same thing, but Cybertruck looks like it was made by aliens from the future. I remember the 2019 debut was... the the sort of famous flop when a guy punched the window and then the glass broke. But, I mean, Kim, you do have to love how they roll with it. The thing that a lot of people hated about this on Twitter is they said, listen, this guy just came out of a trial where he was charged with putting his own interests, you know, ahead of the companies when it came to the um, Solar City acquisition, and he turns around and issues a tweet like this. What are your thoughts on Tesla? Well, I think that's just how they roll, right? Yeah. I mean, it, they are one crazy company and I don't ever want to own them when, you know, things like this are happening. But gosh, doesn't it make watching them fun? And the other thing I have to say is if anybody thinks this is a real truck that's going to start replacing the F-150, you are sadly mistaken. This is a, a the people who want to look like they want to drive a truck in 2100, right? That That's what they'll be driving. And those are the people who are going to buy that truck. Robert, the interesting thing is even while this is going on, he's sort of publicly stating something that a lot of other companies have run into real issues with. So Amazon's division, Rivian, just said, uh, for instance, on the news wires this afternoon, that they're going to have to delay production on supply chain woes. Those are reports uh, that we just saw from Bloomberg a few moments ago. Meanwhile, you have this total fiasco uh, fiasco with Lordstown. Uh, we've seen Nicola and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, this is an area where there's basically regulatory probes. And is his 
sort of candid take on it, you think, a way to, to actually fend that off by saying, listen, we don't know if it's going to work. Yeah, kind of. And I also think it's sort of false humility. Look, the Cybertruck has already been a smashing, so to speak, success. And that's because of the marketing that they've got. You know, they have something like 500,000 orders, but to get an order, you only had to put down $100. And it's kind of like the Roadster, which was announced in 2017. But have we seen it yet? No, we haven't even really seen what it's going to be. And there, there are a lot of orders for that, people putting down $100,000 or more. And so these are sort of small relative to the overall important models of Tesla. And whether they sell or not, whether they even go into production or not, kind of doesn't matter because the aura mm -hmm. that they've already gotten from the marketing of these vehicles is huge. And, and so I think they've, it's already been a success. And anything they actually make, if they do, is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, to that point, Elon Musk himself said at his trial that his use of Twitter is successful advertising and marketing. You know, he said it basically makes them, allows them to price Teslas cheaper because they don't have to spend the budget on advertising. And look what's happening today. How many times have people been talking about the Cybertruck since this tweet? The man is a one-handed, not one-handed, a single-handed marketing genius. <laughs> he absolutely is, Kelly. And we did at Axios a survey with the Harris Poll earlier this year. We pulled 100 companies for their reputation, both Tesla and SpaceX we're in the top 10. Now that doesn't happen just by chance. It doesn't happen because consumers necessarily love the SpaceX product. It's because people love Elon Musk. They love what he did at SNL. They love who he is as a person. I definitely think it helps to push product. All right. Finally today, speaking of billionaires, they are accustomed to getting whatever they want when they wanted, but not this year. Low supply and pent-up demand are creating a logjam for a lot of luxury services. Robert, you've been following this for us. What are the kind of sort of supply chain issues, so to speak, that we're seeing. Yeah, it's, it's supply chain and it's just this incredible amount of wealth that we're seeing just pouring into the same small high-end resort towns in America. You're talking about the Hamptons, you're talking about New England, you're talking about Aspen, you're talking about Lake Tahoe. And this is sort of a window into the most extreme end of the inflation curve, which is everyone's obsession right now is inflation. And, you know, in the Hamptons, just a small example, there is now an $85 plate of pasta at a restaurant that sounds crazy, but they're, they're serving it like crazy this summer. And the problem is just getting into the restaurant. You can't get into any restaurant in the Hamptons for the next month or so because they're all booked. Same thing with Aspen. I talked to the top caterer there. She's booked all summer. She's telling billionaires who've been longtime clients, look, I can't do anything for you this summer. Can you consider a party in the winter, a wedding in the winter? You look at yachts, there is now, I hate to say it, but a yacht shortage. Uh, you can't find dock space. You can't find a marina. You can't find a yacht to charter. Those that are chartering, $125,000 a week for a mid-sized yacht. It's nuts. All right. So we only have time for one comment here. Kim Forrest, somehow I know you can make investable this billionaire shortage theme that Robert's talking about. Well, can I? I don't know. I'm going to have to change my vacation plans, apparently. Totally kidding. No, I mean, I think that this really exemplifies the shortage of both manpower and um, just the whole classes of product that are needed to go into, you know, a final end product. So, 
even the rich have to suck it up this year. Immigration shortages, especially uh, this summer. Absolutely. All right, guys, thank you all. Kim Forrest, Robert Frank and Sarah Fisher for joining us on this Friday edition of Rapid Fire. Sticking with the luxury theme up next, the CEO of Picasso will join me to discuss how the company is making the housing market in the likes of Aspen, Palm Springs and Park City more accessible. That's after this quick break. Welcome back. The pandemic actually spurred a banner year for vacation homes. Last month, home prices in seasonal towns on average hit $468,000. That's the 12th straight month of double-digit growth, according to Redfin. Silicon Valley unicorn Picasso is taking advantage of this red-hot demand. They focus on the higher end of the market. They buy and flip luxury single-family homes to sell subdivided ownership. Let's bring in Austin Allison. He is the co-founder and CEO of Picasso. Austin, it's great to have you. And tell us exactly how this works. Kelly, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Picasso is on a mission to enrich people's lives by making second home ownership possible and enjoyable for more people. And what we're doing is we're modernizing an old practice of co-ownership that's been around for years. So imagine if you and a small group of friends decided that you wanted to own a home together. That's what Picasso does, except for we handle all the details, everything from bill pay to maintenance to design so that you can enjoy your second home and not have to worry about the headaches. What do you mean by own? Because most of us are thinking about a single title and a mortgage attached to that. Yeah, so every home is owned through a special purpose LLC, which is a very common ownership structure. In fact, when we look at most second home markets, there's thousands of homes that are already owned in LLCs. And there's just multiple members through the LLC, but it's true property ownership. The owners have complete control. You can sell any time. And Picasso is effectively a property manager once you purchase your one eighth or one quarter interest in the home. What if I end up having a falling out with my, you know, I I hate to suggest this could ever happen, Austin, but what if there's a, a difference of opinion among the members of this LLC? Yeah, well, that's one of the many reasons why co-ownership is hard to do on your own, because it's tough to reach an agreement with six or eight other people. Picasso plays the middleman in that instance, and we handle all the details. So there really is no opportunity for you to get into a dispute with another owner about what kind of refrigerator to to install or what kind of art we put on the walls. Picasso handles all those details. We're effectively a full service property management company for the co-ownership use case so that owners can just enjoy their home. Yeah, you don't let them uh, pick the, you know, get too involved, basically. So how does this differ from what we think of as traditional timeshares, which, as you know, have garnered such a shady reputation? Yeah, it's a great question. So timeshares are effectively hotels, commercial hotels, where you're purchasing a right to use property. With Picasso, you're purchasing real estate and not time, and you have complete control. It's very different than being part of a big program. The the best analogy that I can provide that's outside of the real estate space would be carpooling. Co-ownership is more like carpooling than it is a timeshare. And what I mean by that is, imagine an empty SUV driving down the highway into the big city with one person in it. That's the equivalent of an empty home. Would you rather have one SUV with full of eight people or eight empty SUVs? Of course, we'd rather have one SUV because it's less pollution, less traffic. The same is true of second homes. Most second homes sit vacant for 11 months per year. We're simply making better use of the housing stock by modernizing this old practice that's been around for years, which we call co-ownership. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I guess my sort of final all-in-one combined question is, 
can I monetize this property? Do I participate in the gains uh, once I sell my interest if there's price appreciation? Same question if the price goes down. Um, are, you know, and as we think through the business model on your end, talk about thoughts, hopes, dreams, wishes for uh, some kind of public listing. Yeah, so, so this is true property ownership. So if the real estate value goes up, you as the owner benefit from that. If the real estate value goes down, you're gonna bear that loss as well. It works the same as it would in a, in a whole home use case. And Picasso makes it really easy for you to sell. So if you buy a Picasso share for say, I don't know, half a million dollars, and you decide a couple of years from now that you wanna sell it for $600,000, we provide a really seamless experience that enables you to do that. And public listing? You know, we're, we're, we're growing quickly. We have big ambitions for the company. Long term, we think that we can empower millions and millions of people to realize their second home ownership dream. And at some point in time, we plan to be a public company, but we don't have specific plans to announce. Austin, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Explaining how it works. Austin Allison joining us from Picasso. Up next, cruises are open to vaccinated and non-vaccinated passengers alike, but the unvaxxed are going to have to pay the price to up to 700 bucks for a family of four. We'll explain it all next. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a quick look at the markets, which are nearing session lows. The Dow's down 146 points, or it's the worst performer, down four-tenths of 1%. Cruise line's also getting hit hard this week as Delta variant COVID cases ramp up. And while they are sailing again, companies are also implementing some stiff penalties for unvaccinated folks. Seema Modi is here with those uh, details. Yeah, we've been looking through the pricing. It's an additional $700, Kelly, that a family of four will have to pay if they're unvaccinated to cruise. That, according to TripAdvisor, making cruises more expensive for travel. Travelers who haven't received the COVID vaccine is seen as a way to discourage them from sailing. It's primarily an issue in Florida where the state is preventing businesses from requiring customers to show proof of vaccination. Now, Carnival and Royal Caribbean are now mandating unvaccinated passengers to buy insurance policies of up to $30,000 to cover costs related to medical treatment and potential evacuation from the ship. Norwegian Cruise Line does not want to comply with Florida's rule, filing a lawsuit against the state earlier this week arguing that the state's rule won't allow its passengers to sail safely and that the Delta variant poses a huge risk. A spokesperson for Florida telling me uh, the cruise line's policy discriminates against children under 12 and others. A hearing is now set for August 6th, and the stakes are high. I mean, if the judge rules in favor of Norwegian cruise line, what is stopping concert venues down in Florida? Hotels that are hosting these large weddings up right. to a scale of three to 400 people from saying, we too want to require the vaccine. It's fascinating because it feels like the first time Florida's had to deal with the um, ire of, of a lot of the business community, where traditionally it's really been a very pro-business, business-friendly state. But on the vaccine passport, that's being switched. We're also seeing the vaccine passport gaining traction in places like France. Where else? Yeah, Singapore as well. These are the two nations that are saying if you are unvaccinated, we're going to restrict your activities across the nation. France saying uh, limiting activity for those unvaccinated at cafes, bars, restaurants as well. I have two friends who own a shop in Paris who said it's unclear how this is going to be enforced. If people are walking into my store, do I ask them if they've been right. vaccinated? So some questions there. I own a couple friends. I uh, have friends who own a store in Paris, too. Fourth Irene Dusmont, or uh, yeah. can you say it? The fourth the circle? Fifth. Yeah. I'm wasting time. Seema, thank you very much. Really appreciate it, Seema Modi. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? 
In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.